The future may not be clear, but our commitment is. So when you sit with an advisor at Merrill Lynch, we'll put your interests first. Visit ML.com and learn more about Merrill Lynch, an affiliate of Bank of America. Merrill Lynch makes available products and services offered by Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer member, SIPC. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Professor Brian Green. He is the director of theoretical physics at Columbia University and is also a super string theorist whose contributions to the worlds of physics and cosmology are right up there with, with some of the greats. If you are at all interested in things like how the universe forms, what's going to happen to it eventually, what actually makes Earth unique and special? Uh, how long is our galaxy going to be in existence? When is the universe going to die? Will the universe die? This is really a fascinating conversation. I love this sort of stuff, and it was just an absolute pleasure speaking with someone who is such a tremendous expert in the field, who can talk with great understanding and has the ability to communicate very, very complex ideas in a way that is readily understandable by just about anybody. Uh, I, I found this utterly entrancing. Uh, for those of you who are physics wonks or cosmology and space wonks like I am, this podcast is for you. I have to add that this week is New York City's Festival of Science, which Professor Green created and, and helps co-produce each year. It's the 10th anniversary of this. So for those of you who have kids who are interested in science or kids you want to make interested in science or in the New York tri-state area, I strongly suggest you bring them. With no further ado, my conversation with Columbia University professor Brian Green. My special guest today is Brian Green. He is professor of physics and mathematics at Columbia University, best known for his groundbreaking discoveries in superstring theory. Uh, the public knows him through his books, most notably The Elegant Universe, Fabric of the Cosmos, and Hidden Reality. Collectively, they have sold over 2 million copies. He also hosted a Nova miniseries, which won both Peabody and Emmy Awards, and that miniseries was based on his book. He is the director of Columbia University's Center for Theoretical Physics, Professor Brian Green. Welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you very much. So I'm a little bit of a physics nerd, and I've been really looking forward to having this conversation. And I want to start with a quote of yours, which is, the universe is rich and exciting, and there's stuff that can knock you over every day if you're privy to it. Tell us about that. Well, I think that's absolutely the case. You know, we love going to, say, the movies, right, to see some Hollywood film that usually comes out of some screenwriter's imagination. But oftentimes I sit and watch those things, and I do enjoy them. But when I step out of the theater, I recognize that the true way the world is put together, quantum mechanics, relativity, all of that stuff is so much more creative and so much more mind-blowing than anything that usually we make up. So I always lament the fact that there's so many people that just don't realize that. So let's talk a little bit about quantum mechanics and general relativity. For a long time, the 
physics descriptors of the very large and the very small seem to be, I don't know if incompatible is the right word, yep. but, but certainly inconsistent with one perspective of seeing the universe. Uh, what what was the cause of that underlying tension? Well, you're absolutely right. So there are these two major discoveries that happened in the 20th century. One, as you mentioned, is general relativity. It's relevant really for the big stuff in the universe, stars, mm -hmm. galaxies, the whole universe. It's a theory of gravity, and gravity matters when things are big. The other main development is quantum physics, and that does a fantastic job at describing the universe in the other end of the spectrum, the small stuff, molecules, atoms, subatomic particles. And each of these two theories, they're founded on completely different ideas. Mm -hmm. They approach the universe in completely different ways. And when you try to take the equations of these two descriptions and meld them together into one unified whole, which is what Albert Einstein wanted to do, really, uh, you find that the equations don't work together. They're these ferocious antagonists. Every time you do a calculation, you get a nonsensical result. And for decades, we've known that that's a real problem, a real puzzle. So let's talk a little bit about Albert Einstein. He really spent the latter part of his professional life trying to find that grand unified theory. Was he too early? Did the technological tools simply not exist to, to give him the building blocks to figure it out? Well, some would even say that we're still too early today. You know, we're struggling to do exactly what Einstein was trying to do. Find a century the, later. A century later. And uh, I, I would say we have made great progress but we still don't know if any of the ideas that we have come up with are actually correct. On paper, they're interesting. On paper, they seem to work, but we've been unable to test any of these theories as yet because our technology is so far behind where our theoretical developments have taken us. So was Einstein too early? He was definitely earlier than we, and we may be too early ourselves. Still. So it could still be the case that the unified theory may be a, a century off. I don't know. So, so let's talk a little bit about Newtonian physics. When Isaac Newton wrote out his laws uh, of the movement of the heavenly bodies, which are still very accurate to this day, yeah. he, he envisioned a, a universe where time and space was rigid. And then we look fast forward to Einstein, and he has a much more flexible and dynamic description of time and space. What is the next evolution going to look like? I wish I could tell you. If I knew the answer, I'd be in my office right now writing it up <laughs> into some spectacular paper. I, mean, I can make some guesses. Sure. I think the next big discovery is going to change our understanding of what space is and what time is. Again, Again the, way, the way Einstein changed well, our understanding from Newton. Well, yeah, that's right. So what Einstein really did, exactly as you described it, he added newfound flexibility to space and time. Mm -hmm. Newton's space and time is just an arena, a stage. They don't participate in the unfolding right. of the cosmos. They're just there. Einstein says, no, 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 they're not just there. They do something. They warp and they curve in the service of communicating the force of gravity. Mm -hmm. Spectacular new idea, radical. But none of those questions, none of those developments give us insight into what space is made of or what time is made of. Mm -hmm. Could it be that space and time are made of smaller, more fundamental entities, just like any piece of matter? We know it's made of molecules, made of atoms, made of subatomic particles. That's been the progression over the course of many decades to figure that story out. Maybe space and time themselves have fundamental constituents. And if we could identify what they are and how they behave and find the mathematical equations to describe them, that to me would be the next revolution. So 
for a long time, the smallest um, particle we understood was the molecule, and then it became the atom, and then protons, neutrons, quarks, gluons, etc. Is it a never-ending progression to ever smaller components, or can we eventually find, hey, that's as small as it gets. That's the fundamental building block of the entire universe and everything in it. So nobody knows. It's a real good question. It's a real tough question because it's always difficult to rule out the existence of something beyond the reach of your equations or beyond the reach of your technology. But personally, my own feeling based on the progression of physics is I think that there is going to come an end. There's going to come a point where we absolutely identify the fundamental ingredients and we absolutely identify the fundamental forces and we identify the equations that describe them. I believe that that chapter will come to an end. There was another department, or I don't know if this is the same department, the Institute for String Cosmology and Astroparticle Physics. Is that a separate research facility? Yeah, that's a subset of the Center for Theoretical Physics that focuses more on the developments of string theory and its applications to cosmology. So, So let's talk a little bit about that. You're best known for your work on string theory. My understanding of string theory... Uh, a layperson as it may be, is atoms are made up of protons, neutrons, electrons, which are broken down to quarks, which are broken down to gluons and muons, and so on and so forth. If you take that down to its smallest constituent, you end up at a different level where the smallest component are vibrating loops of energy and how they vibrate really determines what their characteristics. Is that is that a fair description? Is it a fair description? The one thing I would immediately underscore is everything that you said prior to mentioning strings is physics that we understand and has mm-hmm. been tested and we're certain about. Mm-hmm. When you then take the next leap to string theory, you're going into domain that is not yet tested. So that really is speculation that comes out of decades of mathematics that has given us some confidence that these ideas may be correct, but they've not yet been tested. So so that's a fascinating statement. One of the things that I've read other physicists say is that, well, we haven't proven string theory, but the math is so nearly perfect that there has to be something to it. It's not merely a coincidence. Ex- explain that. Well, I would say that's a nutty thing to say. Okay. Yeah, uh, because there's a lot of beautiful math in mm-hmm. the world and some of it's relevant to reality and some of it's not. And the only way you figure it out is by having observations and experiments. You need to connect to reality. Right. The flip side, there are other folks who say this theory's been around for 30 years. I mean, I've been working on this since 1984. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this theory's been around for more than 30 years. You still haven't tested it. And therefore, it's time to move on. It's no longer doing science. That's also a nutty perspective Mm -hmm. because when you're talking about the universe at such a deep level of existence, way smaller than those little particles that you were describing, the quarks, they're huge compared to the strings, and yet they're tiny by everyday standards. Mm -hmm. We're talking about hundreds of millions of times smaller than those particles. When you're talking about the universe in such extreme realms, it's going to take a while to test it. So you don't just give up because the technology hasn't caught up with you. You keep working and you try to extract some more clever way that you might test these ideas, perhaps using technology we have today or in the next few years. So one of the lines, um, one of the criticisms uh, I've read about string theory is if we can't test this, is this really a science or is it a philosophy? That's right. So that's the the going line among the Mm -hmm. detractors of that sort. And it would be philosophy 
if it were fundamentally impossible to ever test these ideas, right. then you're not really doing science. But that's not the case at all. I and our my colleagues, we can write down predictions mm -hmm. that in principle you could test if you had a big enough accelerator. And and didn't we see Einstein making certain predictions about things that would happen that only recently were proven by the uh, the gravitational wave That's detector right. and things like That's that? That's right. A hundred years ago, he made a prediction of these ripples in the fabric of space, gravitational mm -hmm. waves. And you're right. It took a hundred years almost to the day to, to test that prediction. Now, what mitigates that somewhat is there's an earlier prediction that mm -hmm. was confirmed in just four years. So in 1919, observations of the distant stars during a solar eclipse mm -hmm. confirmed Einstein's prediction that light should be bent as it goes by the surface of the sun. So the detractors will say, come on, Einstein's ideas were spectacular and deep, and it only took four years to confirm them. You guys have been going for 30 years, and you haven't got anything yet. And what I'd say is, We've jumped so far beyond technology, so far beyond right. what we can see, and that makes it much more difficult to test these ideas. Well, he also had the advantage of working with gravity, and there's all sorts of things that you can look at That's right. to perform mathematical tests and experiments. That's the point. When we're talking about sub, sub, sub atomic particles, really we're, there's only so much we can do these days. That's exactly right. So the, my favorite thing about... Um, one of the things that prove Einsteinian um, relativity is that when we have various satellites in space that are used for things like GPS, we have to adjust because they're going so much faster than we are and they experience time relatively compared to us that there's a small mathematical adjustment that has to be made so your GPS is accurate. That's right. And if you didn't do that, both for the motion of the satellites, but also for the fact they experience a different gravitational field than mm -hmm. we do. They're higher up, they're further from the Earth's center, the gravity there is weaker. Those two effects change the rate at which clocks tick off time in that satellite. And that's an objective clock, not, not a subjective yeah, yeah, human a real experience thing. of time. If you didn't take into account, GPS would be inaccurate within a day. In fact, this is a piece of physics that you may have seen in the film Interstellar. I haven't seen it yet, but it's on my, uh, yeah, so, it's on so, my Netflix So I, This queue. is not a spoiler, but mm -hmm. in that film, the protagonist goes near a black hole. And time elapses more slowly near a black hole for exactly because of gravity. And then when they come back away from the black hole, they haven't aged much at all. But their colleague on the mothership that was far away has aged decades. Mm -hmm. So there you see a dramatic version of what the GPS needs to account for. So when you watch a, a science fiction film like that, do you walk out shaking your head and saying, oh, they got the science wrong? Or is Hollywood doing a better job? being a little more accurate these days. I think they're, they're pretty accurate in, to some extent. Uh, that, that film itself had moments where I didn't quite know what science they had in mind. But my view is if I go to a film and they don't break their own rules, if they're self-consistent, even if they differ from the rules of reality mm -hmm. as we understand, that's fine with me. I just want a good story and not something where they no get cheats. lazy. They right. get lazy at the end and do something like, oh, come on. You know, that sort of thing. So let, let me get a little uh, technical with you. You are credited with co-discovering mirror symmetry and spatial topology change. What is that? Well, spatial topology change is the easier one to describe. One of the lessons from Einstein that you indicated already is that space is flexible. Mm -hmm. Newton didn't think that, which means not only can space bend and warp, it can stretch. And that's mm -hmm. what we mean by the expanding universe. But in Einstein's... Meaning the f it's not just that the galaxies are separating, it's that the fabric of space they're on 
is is moving as exactly. well. Exactly. It's if they're kind of stitched into the fabric of space and like spandex. Lycra. Got Lycra. It. It's all stretching. Now, in Einstein's theory, general relativity, space can stretch, but it cannot rip. Mm-hmm. The spandex or the lycra can't tear. But we found in string theory, when you go beyond Einstein to include quantum effects, the fabric of space can rip. It can tear. And that way, it can re- then repair itself and fundamentally change its shape, which we call a change of topology. That's the technical name. But it's just a change of shape that Einstein would not have thought possible that string theory, if it's correct, allows the universe to undergo. He is also the founder of the World Science Festival, which is about to launch its 10th edition in New York City later this year, May 30th to June 4th. Tell us about the festival. Yeah, so this is an event that I co-founded with Tracy Day, a journalist, broadcast journalist. And uh, about uh, you know, 11, 12 years ago, we looked at the state of the world and said, look, we celebrate fashion, books, theater, literature, right? Why don't we celebrate, have big public celebrations of science, Mm -hmm. which is a vital part of how the world is put together and how we're gonna live going forward into the future. So back in 2008, we founded this first edition of the World Science Festival here in New York City. Over 122,000 people came out to the five days of public programming. So it was clear that there was this pent up desire Mm -hmm. to go someplace and experience cutting-edge science in a way that you could get it, that you wouldn't find it uh, intimidating, you wouldn't have to study, you would just be drawn along by these wonderful ideas. And we've been doing it ever since, creating novel experiences of science for the general public. You can be a novice, you can be an expert, you can be young, you can be old, there's something for everybody in the festival. What do you hope the impact is gonna be long-term? Well, the goal really, as articulated in our mission statement is we want people to feel that science has to be part of their lives. Mm -hmm. That it's not something that can be left to the scientist. It's not something that you can leave to the science classroom. Science is not a subject. It really is a perspective. It's a way of life. It's a way of engaging with the world and being able to figure out what's truth, what's not truth, what's fact, what's not fact, and be able to figure out how we should take that information, make policy, and in that way sculpt the future. What do you make of the rise of anti-science, be it the vaxxers who believe that basic vaccines cause autism or the people who, despite overwhelming evidence, either don't believe uh, global warming is real or don't believe mankind has a hand in its creation? What what's the underlying basis of well, this? Well, I think there's a, a general distrust of so-called experts, a general distrust of of the intelligentsia, the folks that actually spend their lives thinking about deep problems, how they affect the world and how we're going to solve them. There's a deep distrust there. And it's up to us, and I hope part of the festival will do that as well as other events around the world, to break down the barrier where everybody recognizes that they can get the ideas. Mm -hmm. It's not this opaque collection of weird facts and theories that you'll never be able to understand. You can get it, and when you get it, it's thrilling and allows you to be part of the process. And when you're part of the process, you're less distrustful because you understand what's going on. What do we need to do to get kids more interested in math and science? Well, that's a big Big question. And of course, the classroom is where most kids encounter these ideas. And look, there are many good teachers. So when I say that somehow we need to improve the classroom, I'm not talking about every teacher. Mm -hmm. But goodness gracious, I can't tell you the number of kids I've spoken to who think science is simply about memorizing some facts and spitting them back on an exam. 
And that's tragic. Science is a journey of discovery that we have been on for thousands of years. And the things that we've figured out from insight into the origin of the universe to the existence of black holes to the weirdness of time and relativity, the strange features of quantum mechanics, when you teach this stuff to a kid and they can get the basic ideas, mm -hmm. I've seen their eyes wide open, light up and say, wow, that's science? And say, yeah, that's what science is about. You know, you and I are only a year or two apart in age, and we're of the generation where we use technology, but we've had to learn how to use computers, internet, software programming, etc. The generation of kids coming up, it, it's uh, second nature. It's a utensil. Yep. You give a, a six-month-old an iPad, and they've mastered it in a couple of hours. What is that going to do for technology and science going forward? Does that give you hope that oh, these kids really appreciate technology and therefore science is, is right there. I wish I could say yes, not necessarily at all because so many folks, so many kids who use this technology, they don't care one whit about where it came from or how it works. They just want to get on to whatever, to Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, whatever. I see my kids using these devices and it makes my heart hurt. <laughs> because because they could be using that time to think about deep questions, and yet they're frittering away so much time on these devices. However, we can use these devices as an impetus to show kids, if we do it right, how there is quantum physics inside of your cell phone. Your cell phone wouldn't work without being able to direct the motion of electrons through tiny microscopic integrated circuits. That's interesting and exciting if presented in the right way. GPS, like we were talking about, your phone has a GPS capacity right. to it. It's got general relativity in some built sense. Right into it. Built right into it. I, I see the you new know. Apple tagline, now with gel, general relativity, <laughs> now with general, that's right. built into we'll, it. We'll charge extra for that. Let's talk a little bit about the creation of the universe. I, I'm somewhat tickled by the theory that nothingness is inherently unstable, yeah. and the universe just vomits into existence because eventually nothingness just can't persist. Is that still the best explanation we have for uh, where the universe came from? It's, it's certainly one of the explanations, and it has not really been fully worked out mm -hmm. into a form that there's a consensus in the community that we've got it by any means. But it is fascinating to think, as you're saying, because the deep question is, why is there something rather than nothing? That's what Leibniz asked, right, right centuries ago. And it's this deep question, right? When we say nothing, we mean the absence of everything, even space and time. Right. And as you're saying, one of the ideas is, well, there may have been an era when there truly was a nothing with a capital N, but it may be that that nothingness can't persist forever. Right. It may be that nothingness tends to disintegrate. And when it disintegrates, nothing turns into a something and an anti-something. And we inhabit the something, and that's where the something of the universe comes from. So when I was younger, the theory was that there was a Big Bang, and that would eventually slow down and reverse, and we'd have a big crunch, and that would go on forever. And that seems to have, uh, based on a century ago, observations of not only galaxies moving away from each other, but doing so at an accelerated pace. They're, they're moving away faster and faster. Yeah. Um, so that kind of gets rid of the big crunch, and it leads to the question of entropy and heat death. Are we looking at a universe that's going to expand forever until it's so far away that there are no stars left in the sky and we're essentially looking at nothingness, which, again, maybe begets that unstable yeah. uh, cycle all over again? It certainly looks that way based on the data today. In fact, I'm writing a book on this very subject, analyzing in great detail what the far future of the universe will be like. 
And the data, if you take it seriously, mm -hmm. does seem to suggest that you're right. The expansion of the universe will continue on. In fact, it will expand ever more quickly over time. And the structures in the universe, like stars and galaxies, will ultimately fall apart, disintegrate, mm -hmm. get sucked up into black holes, which themselves can disintegrate into particles that ultimately are just wafting through an ever colder and ever quieter cosmos. It kind of feels a little bleak when you describe it that way. But that How many trillions of years in the future are we talking? Well, about a trillion years from now, distant galaxies will rush away so far that we can't see them. Our local galaxies will be mm -hmm. able to see, but deep space will go dark. And in terms of the evaporation of black holes, we're talking on the order of 10 to the 100 years, right? So that's that's long. That's yeah. 10 followed by 100 yeah, zeros. That, 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 yeah, so that's- Many, a, many, that's, many trillions. That's a Google. That's right. a Google of, uh, of years. And um, it's a time scale that's so far beyond anything that we've experienced. Right. You know, we're 10 billion, you know, 13 billion, so, you know, 10 to the 10 years. So we're talking in the exponent going from 10 to the 10, 10 to the 100. So these are fantastically large timescales, but- Amazingly, we can use our observations and our equations to make some predictions about what things will be like even on those timescales. So let's talk about something a little uh, less bleak. Let's talk about a multiverse where if our universe might be expanding to cold, dark nothingness, there are an infinite number of other universes ready to either pop into existence or existing in different dimensions. How realistic is that? And what does string theory tell us about that? Well, again, I would underscore that we're now in the realm of interesting mm -hmm. mathematical speculation, but there are many people who take that very idea seriously because as we've tried to understand the Big Bang with ever greater precision, we found that the, the fuel, if you will, that drove the Big Bang is so efficient that it's virtually impossible to use all of that fuel up. Some of it drove our Big Bang, but mm -hmm. some is left over. What does that leftover fuel do? Drives another Big Bang. And even that Big Bang doesn't exhaust all the fuel. Some is left over. So you get bang after bang after bang, universe after universe after universe. At least that's what the equations seem to suggest. So you're right. Our universe could be heading toward this bleak future where everything is cold and spread out. But in those other universes, there may be life forms and their future may be different from ours. So let's talk a little bit about what string theory and your work on it says about this in, I don't remember which book it was. It, maybe it was. Probably Hidden Reality is my guess. Uh, I, yeah, I wanted to reference uh, strings as they move through space, create a membrane yeah. in their trail. And, and there are times where those membranes cross and there's a significant reaction to that. Yeah, so there's a, a way of thinking about parallel universes which string theory gives a particular twist to. It's possible within string theory that there are extended objects, not just one-dimensional filaments like strings. There could be two-dimensional membranes or three-dimensional membranes. We could be living on one of those membranes. Mm -hmm. So I like to think of it as imagine the totality of reality is like a big cosmic loaf of bread where every slice of bread is like one universe everything we know is happening on one piece of bread but there are other pieces of bread in strength there are other membranes which would be other universes that's another way in which reality could be much bigger than our frail senses would lead us to think so let's talk a little bit about dark matter and dark energy on the one hand we look at uh, a basic black hole in the center of a galaxy and the visible mass that we can detect 
is much, much less than what gravity suggests would be sufficient to hold uh, that galaxy together. Uh, am I getting the numbers right? About 90% of the mass is not visible is dark matter? Yeah, so when you even look at the universe as a whole, and you say how much of the stuff that makes up the universe is the stuff that gives off light, the stuff that we know about, say the protons, the neutrons, the electrons, mm -hmm. those things, and it's about 4 or 5% of that the little. whole. Yeah. So you've got about 25 or so percent of the universe in something called dark matter. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you've got the rest of it, 68%, 70%, whatever, in something called dark energy. Again, it's an energy that suffuses space. We believe it's everywhere in every nook and cranny of space. But because it does not give off light, we don't see it. Doesn't give, does it give off some energy? It, it, well, it, it contains energy. And because of that, it exerts a gravitational force. Mm -hmm. In fact, it exerts an anti-gravitational force, pushes everything apart. And we believe that's why the universe is speeding up in its expansion. That outward push from the dark energy filling space. So let's talk about another question that I'm fascinated by. I, I, I'm aware that gravity is the weakest of the major forces and that the strong nuclear force, what holds uh, protons and neutrons together, is the strongest force. I like the way you demonstrate that by leaping off a building. The center of the earth pulls you towards it, but just plain old concrete stops you. Yes. And therefore, concrete is stronger than gravity. But when we look at a black hole, we have a mass the size of a giant sun that's collapsed to a relatively tiny space. And it seems like if you have enough gravity, you can overcome that strong force and crunch all those atoms down to yes. a tiny fraction of their size. Yes, when we say gravity is much weaker than the other forces, like the nuclear forces, we want to do an apples-to-apples -apples comparison. So if you say, take just two particles right. and calculate how the strong force may pull them together versus the gravitational force, big difference. Strong nuclear force wins. But you're right. You put enough stuff together, then cumulatively the gravity that many, many, many particles exert can be stronger than the other forces acting between particles. So, so gravity is able to crush particles together, causing them to fuse together, for instance. That's what happens in the sun. You've got nuclear fusion because mm -hmm. gravity is squeezing everything together and hydrogen melds into helium and helium keeps on going. So uh, yes. Up until we get iron and then that's pretty uh, much that's the right. end Once of, you get to iron, it's sort of the end of the line, the most tightly bound atomic species. And from then on in, the next stop is, is next stop is neutron stars and black holes. Mm -hmm. Do do you um, pay much attention to things like the rare earth thesis, which I find again uh, it's a little off your uh, field of expertise, but the basic concept is to get a planet that's stable enough in a solar system for not just life, which may be surprisingly common, but advanced technological life not to have been disrupted continually by what a hostile place the galaxy can be. Uh, that's kind of a fascinating uh, idea. Oh, oh, totally. You know, people have asked the question, you know, are we alone? In, Ever in since we could, every time yeah. we could ask question. And, um, you know, there are some who say, look, life appeared on planet Earth as quickly as it possibly could, which suggests to them that life is just raring to go everywhere in the universe where conditions are ripe. On the other hand, to get intelligent life that can actually build spacecraft and radio telescopes, you need a lot of, a lot of time. lucky coincidences, yeah. right? You got to make sure that your planet's protected from asteroids that are slamming in. You got to 
I mean, take our planet as a great example. If if this asteroid hadn't slammed in and wiped out the dinosaurs 65 million years right. ago, we wouldn't be the dominant folks walking around. It would still be the dinosaurs. Now, who knows? Maybe by now they would have built spacecraft and telescopes and radio. No opposable you know, thumbs. But maybe know, not. Uh... It would have been hard. That's right. So so there you go. And we're we're even in a part of our own galaxy that doesn't have too much radiation. We're not too close to the yep. middle. Yep. We're not too far out. It's really a, a series of Goldilocks events. And then the other, which means it might be very rare, right? And although rare, still can mean there are hundreds of thousands in any given. It depends. It depends how rare. Mm -hmm. That's the key question. Because if the rarity, if the probability is sufficiently small, Mm -hmm. then we could be the unique one. We have been speaking with Professor Brian Green of Columbia University. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out our podcast extras, where we keep the tape rolling and continue to talk about all things cosmological. Uh, Be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. What could your future hold? More than you think. Because at Merrill Lynch, we work with you to create a strategy built around your priorities. Visit ML.com and learn more about Merrill Lynch, an affiliate of Bank of America. Merrill Lynch makes available products and services offered by Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer member, SIPC. Welcome to the podcast, uh, Professor Green. Thank you. I don't know what to call you, Professor Green. Brian, Whatever you like. Pro- Brian? Yep, Professor, sure. Professor Green seems more uh, appropriate. Thank you so much for doing this and oh, being so generous with your time. I, I was saying earlier... I have the hardcover of uh, The Elegant Universe somewhere, but we moved it's in boxes, and I picked up uh, some of the paperbacks to to remind me of what I read a while ago. And really, The Elegant Universe is so readable. I mean, I ha- I'm a little bit of a physics geek, but I don't have any significant background, and I found it completely accessible and... and very interesting read for something that is talking about really sophisticated, complex ideas. That's not easy to communicate. Yeah, no, thank you. You know, the, the challenge, of course, is in building bridges between things that the typical person who was interested in science but not an expert is familiar with mm-hmm. from everyday life and building a bridge from the familiar to the unfamiliar. And uh, it's a fascinating journey for me as a writer and a physicist to try to figure out ways of explaining these ideas. And when it works, you know, it's gratifying. I, I can imagine. The, um, there are some questions I skipped over that I, I have to get to before we get to our, our standard questions. And one of them has to do with... Um, uh, gravitrons. Gravitons? Gravitrons? Gravitron, I think, is the exercise equipment gravitons. that allows you to do chin-ups. There you with go. Support. Gravitons. So gravitons is the particle. So yes. we haven't, have we discovered the no, particle? No. Or is it just theoretical? It's just and- theoretical. It's not surprising that we haven't discovered it because, as we were discussing in the main interview, gravity is the weakest of nature's forces. Mm-hmm. The graviton is the smallest bundle, the smallest particle of the weakest force, mm-hmm. which makes it enormously challenging to try to detect these particles, but most of us are pretty convinced based on our understanding of the other particles that communicate the other forces of nature that gravitons are out there even if we can't actually capture them. Like photons? Photons is a great example. That's a particle that transmits the electromagnetic force. Mm -hmm. It's the little packet, the little bundle of that force. And by analogy, the graviton would be the little 
quanta, the little particle transmitting the gravitational force. So I love the thought experiment showing the difference between Newtonian physics and Einsteinian physics, which is all the planets are, are uh, revolving around, rotating, revolving around the, the sun. Yep, yep. If the sun were to magically disappear, mm. would it be instantaneous for the planets to be flung out in the straight line uh, that they were previously moving without the sun holding them in? Or would there be a delay right. in the planet physically recognizing that there's no more gravity and, and moving on? Yep. The Einsteinian conclusion is it would take about as long as a beam of light yeah. to reach the planet. So you would, for, what is it, eight and a half or nine minutes? Would, eight minutes and 20 seconds, Would yeah. continue rotating around uh, the sun. Yeah. Despite its not being there, yeah, yeah, it's a it's a beautiful idea. Um, you know, uh, Newton's equations that we all learned in high school simply tell us that one object pulls on another depending on how far apart they are in their masses. There's no notion of time in that equation, mm -hmm. which means if you change the mass of one or other of these bodies, you'll change the force instantaneously. So you and go to zero and that's, that's it. That's right. So, so the formula, if you don't mind me getting technical sure. here, is you know F equals G M1 M2 over R squared. That's what mm -hmm. we all learned. But if M1, the mass of one of those bodies, goes to zero, then F goes to zero immediately, right. which in the picture you described would suggest that if some alien were to come in and somehow grab hold of the sun and rip it out so it's simply gone, then Earth and all the planets should instantaneously fly out of their orbits. Einstein looked at that and said, oh, come on, that can't possibly be, because in 1905, he discovered that nothing can go faster than the speed of light. And that would be an instantaneous conveyance of information. Perfect, yeah, an influence that goes from across the whole solar system in no time at all. So so what about entangled particles and, and spooky action at a distance? Is that still w stuck with the speed of light as its uh, limitation? That's a subtle question, and we believe the answer to that question is yes, it's still stuck with it, because when you have two distant particles that are linked through quantum entanglement, mm -hmm. it is in fact the case that what you do to one particle seems to instantaneously have some kind of quantum effect on the other. However, no information can ever be transmitted through this effect from the first particle to the second particle. So it kind of gets by on the small print, if you will, that, uh -huh. that, that there's no information going from one particle to the other faster than the speed of light, even though there's a quantum correlation. Their behaviors are acting in tandem, even though they're far apart. So this goes back to having a better lawyer than God. Yeah, that's right. Thing. I, I've always hated the small print explanation. But let me just say. If it changes instantly, yeah. isn't something happening faster than the speed of light? I, I completely empathize with the, <laughs> with, the, with the perspective. And in fact, in one of my books, I think it's The Fabric of the Cosmos, I describe the party line, which is the one I just told you with mm -hmm. the small print, no information travels. And then on the next page, I say, hey, but look, Something. something's going Something, weird here. Something happened Th and it's faster right. than the speed that's of light. That's right. And I think part of the reason why we can't give the full answer today that will make you satisfied is that we don't fully understand quantum mechanics. Mm -hmm. There is a real puzzle in quantum physics. It's called the quantum measurement problem, mm -hmm. which is when we experimenters measure a quantum particle, our measurement seems to affect it, but we can't really articulate or describe how that effect is communicated or what actually happens. Now, you might say, well, that's pretty important. I mean, how do you know anything about quantum mechanics if you don't understand how to measure something? Well, amazingly, this hole in our understanding, this gap does not prevent us 
from making predictions, mm -hmm. from being able to harness quantum mechanics to build cell phones and personal computers. But theoretically, there is a gap in our understanding. And I think that when we fill that gap, you have me on the show, and okay. you ask me that question again about entanglement, and I'm going to be able to give you a full answer. So growing up, to me, that was always we can measure the location or the spin or the location and the speed, but not both at once. Is, is that essentially... That's still part of our understanding for sure, that there are complementary qualities of a particle that cannot simultaneously be ascertained. So you can't know where the particle is and what its speed is simultaneously. You can know one, the other, not both. Now, how, how does the idea of the process of measuring it changes it, and therefore, even if you could, you've affected it? Or am I misremembering No, you're that? right on target. You know, there's this picture that came to us from Newton, which is, you know, there are physical systems and you glance at them and you measure them, but your measurement doesn't change them, doesn't affect them. You're simply extracting a feature of that system. Mm -hmm. The distance between the sun and the earth, just measure it. The speed of that baseball, I guess they didn't have baseball in Newton's times, or the speed of that rock, you just measure it. It doesn't affect it. But when you're talking about particles, your active measurement on a tiny electron mm -hmm. can wreak havoc. And that makes it a much more subtle procedure to understand what a measurement is. And that's the thing that we've not yet fully resolved. Let me ask you this question. How confident are you that in our lifetimes uh, there will be a grand unification theory solved? Well, if no one cracks the issue of immortality, <laughs> then I suspect that I'm not particularly optimistic that will have a complete unified theory that's been tested to the degree that we're ready to chisel it in stone. I wish I could even say for that. Really? Yeah. You so know, we're, we're talking a century or so off. You see, I think there's something interesting that's about to happen, which is if the Large Hadron Collider in Geneva, Switzerland, just mm -hmm. turned back on actually right. this week. They it, sh Now, it was taken off when CERN came online because it was so much bigger and, and theoretically eat their lunch, but- what, what changes did they do to the Hadron Collider, well, and what are you yeah, expecting? Yeah, so, so the Large Hadron Collider is, is part of CERN, and, and so what they've done is periodically they upgrade it. I'm thinking of the, Fermi. Is yeah, the, Fermi uh, Lab is the, the other one here in the United States. But, you know, you're right. They, they take it offline, they upgrade it, they make it stronger, and it's going to be the most powerful incarnation of that machine, the highest so-called luminosity, the greatest number of particles slamming together. That's what it's all about. And the thing is, if they don't find something new, startlingly new. Mm -hmm. We may find ourselves in a situation where funding agencies are not so excited in these difficult financial but eras. But they've made a series of, I mean, if, I agree with if you. you look at yeah. physics the past 20 years, yeah. it's, it's almost, I don't want to say a daily newspaper headline, but there has just been a series of spectacular, from the gravitational waves, go, uh, and yeah. LIDAR, and go, go down yeah. the list of but things. But here's the problem, here's the problem. None of those were unexpected. That doesn't take away from the achievement of the discovery. But everybody knew that gravitational waves were there. It was a question of will we have the technological wherewithal to detect them? The Higgs particle. Mm -hmm. Everybody believed it was there. The question was, will we actually find it? We did. Spectacular. So there have been great breakthroughs. But what we need is something that rocks our world where we can go back to funding agencies and say, we've got to understand this. This mm -hmm. is an anomaly. This doesn't make sense. This is the gateway to a deep new understanding of the world. If we can't do that, it may be decades or maybe even centuries before we have the next big machine. China may step in. The rumors that China may build the next big machine, but that's 20, 30 years off, maybe. So when you hmm. talk about timescales, 
And even that big machine may not be powerful enough to test grand unified theory or string theory. Right. So, so that's why I'm not particularly optimistic that we're going to have the unified theory in hand in the next generation or two. I would love China f- to build a huge machine because if you look at how much of modern technology traces its lineage back to Sputnik, which caused a giant arms race, and fortunately we managed not to blow ourselves up, yeah. but it still led to, hey, these guys are ahead of us in space. We have to get there also. Maybe China would uh, stimulate some competitive juices and, and get governments behind these yeah. big uh, well, physics programs. Well, certainly more exciting than building a border wall. Mm-hmm. So I would... Uh, well, we could test if Galileo's theory, see if things drop. Drop, the that's exact right same. there. That's that lot on of science. the top. You're going to see science in the border. Very right. nice. You, can, you could nice. do that. Now, granted, yeah. you can't, it's not a vacuum. Which side of the wall are you going to drop things on? That's, um, that's a big issue. That... <laughs> <laughs> it depends on the yeah. uh, nationality of the uh, scientists, yeah. I guess. Um, all right. So I wanted, I didn't get to uh, Icarus before, and I have to ask you a couple of questions, which come from, it's me moving my papers around. These come from Matic, age 10, and oh. Ellis, age 7, who are big fans of Icarus at the Edge of Time, which is the kid's book you wrote about black holes. Yes. I'm not going to give you all the questions they asked, but I'm just going to give you the top 50 or so. Um, When did you first become interested in astrophysics? When I was quite young, five or six years old, I grew up across from the planetarium in New York City, which I think is certainly part of it. That's fascinating. But I always had this urge to look out and think about stars and the galaxies. And my dad was a big mentor of mine in those things. He wasn't trained in any of this stuff, but he was just fascinated by it. He was a composer, a singer, a performer, but he would tell me all about this stuff. So quite young. So what can we learn from black holes and how relevant are they to our daily lives? Well, black holes are the primary theoretical laboratory that people like me play with because they're so extreme. So much mass crushed to such a fantastically small size. And when you have such extreme domains, that's when you can break existing ideas Mm -hmm. where existing ideas can fail. And where they fail is an opportunity to step in with new understanding. But that, again, is in the theoretical realm. Black holes are becoming more and more part of the observational realm. Mm -hmm. There's this new telescope. Have you heard about it? It's called the Event Horizon Telescope, Mm -hmm. where they're actually looking right at the edge, the so-called Event Horizon of black holes to perhaps really see what's happening there. Take a photograph of a black hole itself. So they're becoming... This has been launched into uh, yeah, just, orbit around the Earth? That's right. Well, actually, it's a, it's a series of radio telescopes around the Earth that are mm-hmm. working together to combine their imagery to create a very high-resolution picture of a black hole. So more and more black holes are becoming part of the, the everyday side of observational science. So they're not as esoteric as they once were. And the current theory is that black holes exist in the center of each galaxy? Is that fairly, That seems to be uh, the case. Yeah. So this went from a crazy idea to an abstract thesis to every galaxy has one. Yeah, when this idea first came online, this is back in about 1917 or 1916, Carl Schwarzschild was playing with Einstein's mathematics mm-hmm. and came upon this idea. Einstein resisted the yes. idea of black holes throughout his life, even even the 1930s. Oh, really? Yeah, I he was writing papers showing here's why black holes can't be real. So he was a revolutionary thinker, but also conservative in some ways, too. But yes, now 
there's virtually no denying that black holes are actually out there. I mean, we're going to take a photograph of the edge of a black hole. There may be uncertainties about what happens inside a black hole mm-hmm. and the detailed mathematics that really describes them, but these entities do appear to be part of the universe. What about wormholes? That's a theory that we haven't really seen a whole lot of yeah. evidence for, but there's a lot of theoretical excitement around it. Certainly much more speculative than, mm-hmm. than black holes. I mean, wormholes are allowed by Einstein's mathematics, but there's zero evidence that they're actually real, and therefore there's sort of zero reason to think that they're out there today. But look, you could have said that about a lot of stuff in mm-hmm. the world before we encountered it, so I'm, I would be remiss or it'd be a little bit uh, naive for me to suggest that they're absolutely not real, but there's just no evidence yet. And one more question from Maddox and Ellis. What do you want the young reader to learn from your book? The point of Icarus at the Edge of Time was to give the reader a sense of what happens at a black hole without it being an instruction manual, without it being pedagogical, without it being a teacher or a professor telling you what's going on, merely by virtue of going for the ride in the story. So a boy builds a spaceship, goes to the edge of a black hole, his dad says not to do it. It's like the original myth of Icarus, (laughs) but now instead of the sun with wax wings, you know, it's a boy building a spaceship. And then when he comes back from this journey, he doesn't die, but because time slows down near the edge of a black hole, when he comes back and wants to show his dad what he's done, he quickly realizes that he comes back to a world 10,000 years into the future. And this is what really could happen. This is Mm -hmm. not science fiction, even though the story, of course, is fictional. And I want people to get a feel for what it is that happens at a black hole and also to recognize if, if I'm just going to finish up my answer maybe a little tall, too long winded but I hated, I hated the original myth of Icarus it kind of said if you don't do what your dad says you die right I mean dad says Icarus don't fly near the sun Icarus does because he's courageous maybe a little reckless and he dies melts the wings crashes melts, into that's the sea right. but you know if you're going to have a breakthrough in science you've got to be somewhat reckless you have to go against what people tell you you cannot do what your forefathers or foremothers tell you to do you may return to a strange reality if you discover something spectacular but that's the nature of the beast I recall when when one of the colliders was coming online we got warnings of they're going to create a black hole here on earth I thought that was kind of yeah that was uh, a weird Icarus like uh, fear well yeah this is 2008 they're turning on the machine and I got a call from so many news outlets to be on television to talk about the starting of the Large Hadron Collider and I was like wow science is mainstream we've really got there <laughs> they didn't want to talk about the collider they wanted to talk about this little black hole that might be created that might suck up Geneva Nobody really worried about that here. But then it might suck up the rest of the planet Earth. People start to worry a lot about that. And the that's good, what it was about. The good news is you wouldn't even feel it. It would, <laughs> It'd be, it would quick. be over like that. That's right. So there are two other uh, string theory related questions I have to ask before I move to my standard questions. One is, all right, our everyday common experience. We have the three spatial dimensions, X, Y, and Z, plus time is four. How do we get from that to 11 because 11 seems like a lot of dimensions it is a lot of dimensions and it's a strange idea because you look around the world and there's as you say left right back forth up down the three spatial dimensions of common experience where in the world could there be more than that there's just no room for it and yet the mathematics of string theory suggests that there are additional dimensions of space so it's been up to us to figure out where they are 
And that's really been the focus of my work for many decades. Others as well have worked on this enormously. And the idea is that maybe these other dimensions are all around us. They're just crumpled to such a fantastically small size that we can't see them with the naked eye or even with our most powerful equipment. But that's the idea. If, the, these, if these theories are correct, we're looking at a world that has more dimensions than the three that we know about. The, the explanation that I've found interesting is it's a function of perspective. If, if you're um, an ant on a line, well, you only see forward and back. And if that line turns out to be a garden hose, well, oh, guess what? Now there's another dimension you can travel. We're stuck in three dimensions and therefore... We, we lack the ability to see your experience, Yeah, the other seven, but seems like a lot. Now, at one point in time, there were a variety of different numbers of yeah. dimensions. How did we settle on 11? Well, And there were originally five different theories, and yeah. Witten, Professor Witten took That's a— right. Took a, a paddle to them and basically came up Slammed with- them all together. Yeah, Edward Witten, who's sort of the, the grand master of string theory at the Institute for Advanced Study, had a great breakthrough in the mid-1990s. There were five competing versions of string theory. All of them had nine dimensions of space, had six additional ones, not the seven that we're referring to. And um, he realized that if you looked at it the right way, all these five theories are actually different windows onto the same theory, number one. Moreover- when you did the more precise analysis that this combined perspective gave you, you found one additional dimension of space that we had long missed. Mm -hmm. And that's what took us from nine dimensions of space to 10, which as you say with time, takes us to 11 space-time dimensions. Mm -hmm. So that number's pretty stable now, right now. But yeah, that's the historical progression. And, and Witten was, um, there's the old, uh, I think it's Kipling, the parable of the six blind men describing the, the elephant. elephant. yeah. And they're all on a different body part, the trunk, the ear, the tail. Yep. And yet they're describing the same thing just from a different perspective. Exactly right. And then the last question I have before I get to my favorites, when we look at the remnants of the Bing, Big Bang, there are lots of clues so we have the cosmic background radiation. We have the cold spots in parts of the universe. There are all sorts of evidence that, hey, this seems to have really happened. We may not understand precisely how, but we have a pretty substantial body of, of um, observations that, that support it. In any of these observations, do we find support for superstring theory? No. Now, that is not a black mark against the theory because the theory really comes into its own in domains that have much higher energy, much smaller distances than the things that we can see even with the most powerful telescopes right. or even with, say, the Large Hadron Collider. So the theory can agree with everything that we found, but where it differs from the things that we know about, those are domains that we can't yet access so we're in this kind of curious limbo land mm -hmm. that we have this beautiful mathematical theory that seems to unify things, gravity and quantum mechanics, does it with some strange and wonderful ideas, extra dimensions of space mm -hmm. being one of them, fundamental filaments at the heart of matter being another, but we've yet to be able to determine if these ideas are actually describing our universe. Huh. That That's quite fascinating. So, so now let me jump to my favorite uh, pod qu podcast questions uh, that I ask all of my guests. 
So I know a decent amount about your background. Did you ever think about doing anything other than going into physics? Oh, gosh. Well, when I was really little, up to sort of 10 or 11 years old, I was intent on being a professional bowler. That's really Bowler, not bowler. even a baseball player. <laughs> no, no, a bowler. bowler. Definitely bowler. I used to spend my summers bowling over on the east side at 80th Street and York Avenue. There used to be a bowling alley there. Do you there. still bowl? I don't. That's a thing of my past. Uh, I gave that up. In okay. the teenage years. Um, I have to send you a YouTube video of a bowler who in, I think, 43 seconds bowls a perfect game. No he goes, way. I'll send this to you. He goes, you know, bowling alleys sure. and lanes. And the balls ball, are all ball, stacked ball, up. Ball, yeah. ball, ball, How do you even reset the pins? And because it, because by the time he gets to the 10th one, right. then he goes back to wow. the first one and does the last three things. That's amazing. If you're a bowler at all- I will appreciate you that. You will find that yes. quite like, oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, so aside from being a professional bowler, what else was- uh, Well, you know, um, if I was to go back- in retrospect, I would say neuroscience is one of the most amazing fields that, that is being developed today. So I could certainly imagine loving being a researcher in that field. Uh, certainly writing is something that I take very seriously. And, mm -hmm. and that is, I do consider myself, that's part of what I do. Well, you, know? you got four going on five books. Yeah. I, I think it's the fifth book you're allowed yeah, to that, that You yourself. can call yourself that. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, so those are sort of the main things. I never really imagined doing anything radically different mm -hmm. from, from it was always going to be science Pretty and much. communicating science yes, somewhere yes. along lines. Uh, so tell us about some of your early mentors. You, you've had some fascinating schooling and you've, uh, worked with some amazing people. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I went to New York city public schools, mm -hmm. you know, through, through eighth grade, then I went to Stuyvesant High School, which is still a public school. Right, and uh, I was fortunate in the seventh grade. It must have been that my math teacher at IS forty four, the intermediate school on seventy eighth Street, gave me a note that I took up to Columbia University, and the note basically said, "Hey, this kid's smart in math. We can't teach him anything else. Can, <laughs> can you help us out?" And I just handed this to person after person on the Columbia campus. Sort of a weird thing to do, knocking on doors. And amazingly, I knocked on a door in the math department, and a fellow named Neil Bellinson, one of the most generous, smart, spectacular Wait, human grade? beings. Wait, seventh grade? You're 11? Uh, whatever 12, age that is. Something, I, like, something that? like that. Yeah, uh, must be. And, um, and, and he said, he looked at the note and he said, sure, I'll teach you. And it was, you know, for free. We didn't have money, couldn't pay him. Uh -huh. And just out of the goodness of his heart, he met with me three, four times a week over the summers, taught me math that I'd never learned any other way. During the year, I'd meet with him on Saturdays. He'd, he'd pick me up at the bus stop near his house in the cold of winter and take and we'd learn math. I mean, who does this? What an right. amazing thing. And it allowed me just to sail off into mathematical domains that kept my interest going and really just kept the juices flowing in my brain which is very important. Wow, that's fascinating. What, and his name was? Neil Bellinson. Wow. And, and if he's listening, I, I don't know where he is. You know, I haven't had contact with him in, in like decades. Maybe he'll hear this. That, Who knows? That's, that's amazing. Any other mentors you want to mention? Well, I had some great teachers in the New York City public schools. Mm -hmm. a, a guy named Danny Kotak. I don't know if he's still alive any longer. He, he, he was the guy that wrote that note. Mm -hmm. and, and he, again, was just a, a, a spectacular teacher that just made mathematics so fascinating mm -hmm. and just kept, kept the interest going there. Um, and then, you know, when we, when we go to high school and college, you know, there's a professor at Harvard, Howard Georgi, one of the great particle physicists of our era, 
And uh, he again just, I, I would go talk to him as a freshman. I'd just knock on his door. I was bold. And he would open the door and I'd walk in for hours. We'd talk about stuff and he'd teach me stuff on the blackboard. So again, you know, the one lesson is if you're willing to go forward, people are there willing to help you. Mm-hmm. They're not necessarily going to come to you, but if you go to them, the opportunities are there. I'm intrigued by the story that you're on campus and you see a flyer. Uh, oh, yeah. Lecture this evening, The Theory of Everything. Yeah. That sounds interesting. Let's go look at that. How, is that what led you yeah. into deeper into the world of physics? You know, totally. I was a graduate student at Oxford, you know, in England. And uh, I was, as you're saying, walking across the campus one day and saw that sign. And I went and checked it out. And it was a talk by a guy named Michael Green, not related to mm-hmm. me. Uh, and he was one of the founders of string theory. And he was talking about the breakthrough that he and a guy named John Schwartz, who's at Caltech, mm-hmm. that they had found. And that's what turned me on to string theory as a graduate student. And I shifted my work and just about everybody else in the world shifted their work to focus on this new idea that they had come up with. Intriguing. Uh, who else influenced your approach to thinking about science, physics, math, or communication? Well, I like to think that, that Einstein is, mm-hmm. is always with me and, and my colleagues too, of course, every step of the way. Almost everything that I do has, in some sense, intellectual roots that go back to Einstein's mm-hmm. ideas. He's pervasive in the field. But the other person is the Einstein of our age, which is Edward Witten at mm-hmm. the Institute for Advanced Study. Again, you know, so many of the papers that I've done ultimately go back to ideas that he had that we were able to develop in one way or another. I spent a, a wonderful year at the Institute for Advanced Study, you know, decades ago, where talking to Ed Witten every day, we actually got into a little friendly competition where this idea that space could rip Mm-hmm. Topology change. He had a way of doing it. We had a way of doing it. And during those three months, we were all racing to the finish line. And we, we finished at the same time, different approaches, published our papers on the same day. Really? Yeah. So it was a wonderfully exciting time. To, he has. To, yeah. To, to come up with these strange ideas. He has some um, uh, lectures and interviews online. And he is just such a soft-spoken, gentle individual. It's hard to imagine him in like bloodthirsty academic debate because he just seems to... Well, here's so the thing. Gently. Yeah, but he doesn't. He doesn't need to ever get angry because he's so much smarter than everybody else. He can crush everybody you. Everybody says that. He can crush you with him. just you know a few words. Everybody you know. I've seen or read has have said, "Hey, we're all really smart." And then there's Ed Witten. Yeah, it's just a yeah. different. No, and working with him is quite a trip. You know, there'd be five of us in his office, and we're talking about stuff, and all of a sudden he stops talking. He looks up. Everybody gets quiet because Ed is thinking. And you don't want to disturb Ed's thinking. And, you know, sometimes he really is coming up with something new. Sometimes maybe he's just thinking about lunch, you know. <laughs> so there were times when I was a little bit bold and I'd say, so, Ed, any, anything else that we should, after like 15 minutes of silence, you know, Ed, anything else we should talk? Oh, said, no, no, we're good. We'll, we'll meet again later. And we'd all leave the office. That, that's know? amazing. Let's talk about books. This is the most popular question I get from, from readers and listeners. What are some of your favorite books? Hmm. Well, gosh. Fiction, nonfiction, physics, whatever. Well, yeah, in the fiction domain, I, I'm a great fan of uh, Camus. You mm-hmm. know, uh, The Stranger is one of my favorite books. <clears throat> Wait, me. I always thought that was fi- nonfiction, Camus. Uh, Existentialism. And- yeah, no, but he, he wrote stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, the stories are- To tell the story. To tell of- the stories. And, and they're just amazing works of literature. 
Um, so that's uh, Kafka. You know, the trial I think is one of the one uh-huh. of the great stories, quite relevant in our age. Uh, certainly, Orwell is one of my favorite authors. Nineteen eighty four, Animal Farm. You know, in the nonfiction domain, you know, there's a book. You may I don't know if you know of it. It's called The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker. Won the nineteen seventy four Pulitzer Prize. I think that was the year. One of the most influential books I've ever read. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It really describes human motivation and why we do what we do from sort of a post-Freudian perspective where we really are the only species that knows that we're going to die. And that drives us to try to do things that will give us a sense of permanence. And if you take that perspective, I can't do it justice in 30 seconds, but you recognize so much of what we do is driven by this fear of the impending doom that faces us all. And I have to tell you, this is a book that's really even influencing the book I'm writing right now. Mm -hmm. The book I'm writing now is about the whole history of the universe from the beginning to the end. And as you described it, the future does look like a death to the universe, the heat death. We even use that language. And the book kind of shows an interplay between our recognition as a species that we will die with this recognition that the universe as a whole is going to die. And how do those notions play off of each other? How does that affect how we live? That's sort of what this book is about. Fascinating. And any other books you want to mention? Give Give us a physics book that's not your own, that, that you think is uh, worth pursuing? Wow, that's a good or, question. Or cosmology or astrophysics or... Uh, well, you know, Richard Dawkins, if we're going to go uh-huh. outside of physics sure. itself, you know, what a beautiful writer, you know, and what a capacity he has for taking ideas in the biological realm and just writing in a way that can make you weep. I mean, it's mm-hmm. such, such beautiful writing. So I'd say he certainly is, anything that he's written is, is well worth one's time to read. Really quite quite fascinating. So, also, I would say Steven Pinker. You know, uh, Steven he was Pinker. a previous guest. Oh, okay, yeah. I love the concept. Yeah. So I, uh, uh, a little self-interested digression. So I do a lot of work with behavioral economics and why investors mm. are so bad at what they do because of uh, the cognitive wetware was not designed. Yeah. You know, if it was a uh, pharmaceutical, we would call it off-label usage. We right. weren't designed for this. I purpose. agree with you completely. And and. Pinker's book, the better, um, better angels, angels of, of our, our nature, nature. Yeah. Um, basically shows how things can be getting better and better and better, right. and yet you're unaware of it. The phrase I use is denominator blindness. But if you see, you know, something on the news, uh, there was this crime, this murder, this robbery. Well, what does that tell you about the overall trend? Is this right. more than average? Is this less than average? We've been hearing about all these terrible crimes, and yet by every data point we look at, most serious crimes are at 30, 40, even 45-year lows. You look around the world, Mm. uh, poverty, uh, slavery, nutritional shortfall, there has never been a better time to be a human being on this planet. And yet you read the headlines, and it doesn't quite give you that same perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's, uh, that's Pinker's... Book. I, I, yeah. I'm going to have you start asking me questions if I mm. keep going off yeah. on this. Let me get back to my uh, my list. So let's talk about what's changed since you've joined uh, the realm of physics. What do you think are the most interesting changes that have taken place Yeah, well, the for big, better or worse? Yeah, well, I'd say the big developments in physics, the thrilling ones, are the discoveries of ideas that were put forward 100 years ago or 50 mm-hmm. years ago the issues of the microwave background radiation, heat left over from the Big Bang, that now we can measure with such spectacular precision. And what we see matches what the math says. 
that gives us confidence that we truly understand what was happening 13.8 billion years ago. That's utterly thrilling. You know, the discovery of the Higgs boson, that we now understand that there can be this field permeating space, and that's why other things have mass. We found the particle. These ideas. The God particle. The God particle. I'm sort of not a great fan of that word, but yeah, that's what it's <laughs> called. When I learned about this in graduate school in the 1980s, it was taught to me in a way where I didn't even know that it hadn't yet been confirmed. It was spoken oh, of really? as if this is how the world works. It was decades before I knew, wait, we don't have that particle in our hands? Well, decades is an exaggeration, a few years. And then 2012, we find the particle. And then gravitational waves is the other big one, right? None of us who are in the theoretical end of things really thought that they were going to detect these gravitational waves? Ever or just in our lifetimes? Not, I mean, look, you're looking at a wave that can stretch device by a fraction of an atomic diameter. Mm -hmm. How can you measure stretching by the fraction of an atomic diameter? And you, yet these guys pulled it you off. You set up a, a tube. It's you're a couple right. of miles wrong. Yeah. You get a laser on Good one idea. End, Good idea. And you have a mirror that refracts it in the other, and you just measure the two waves Theoretically. When they come back. Theoretically, How hard I agree that with be? you. That's, come on. They, they could have figured that out years ago. You're absolutely right. But no, it is it is stunning achievement. But, um, but that, we mentioned this earlier, we are living in a golden age of yeah. physics where things that theoretically have been described when you see hard proof like that and and by the way oh we could trace this to two black holes that collided 1.3 billion uh, years right. ago oh yeah. okay hey we there's proof of that and here it is in yeah. the shift yeah. in this in this measurement that's an astonishing accomplishment yes, i don't absolutely. i don't know if people uh, uh, people who aren't physics nerds appreciate and, and there seems to be so I subscribe to a bunch of different email lists yeah. because I I do a, a morning set of reads for everybody here the ten most interesting things from markets to psychology to mm. whatever and I'm on all these different lists and the sort of stuff that comes from the physics side it's it's not like every six months I get a hey here's this big announcement it's every day there's yeah. two or three different things and every week there's some hey, this is a pretty big deal. And it seems at least once or twice a month, it's, hey, this is groundbreaking stuff. Yeah. It's a, are you, do you stop and say, I'm really glad that my lifespan incorporates this era of spectacular discovery? Absolutely, absolutely. But you can't help but say to yourself, Wow, if only I'd been born like a few hundred years from now, I could read about all this exciting stuff and know what's going to happen then. No, then it's so. boring. It's done. I, I think, so stop and think about, this is a fun little experiment. Yeah. Think about the people who lived in the 30s, 40s, 50s, didn't make it to the 80s and 90s. Yeah. And computers were these things that were the size of a room. Mm. And there was no concept of an internet other than, hey, we have a system set up that in case we are attacked with nukes, we could launch uh, a response and, and wipe out most of the planet. Uh, that was the concept of an internet. And we had phones with phone operators and the plugs and everything. Yeah. Think about, and maybe this is me showing my age, but I've gotten to see some astonishing things just in the past 50 years I, I think it might be boring to be born after everything is figured out. Yeah, I don't think so. I think it's only <laughs> going to get more exciting. And and the possibilities of of 
artificial intelligence, the possibilities of maybe simulated worlds, simulated realities, the possibilities, mm-hmm. if we go a little nutty here, of downloading your consciousness sure. into a silicon environment. You know? Yeah, so who knows if any of that stuff holds any water, but I would love to be around to see. Huh, Sound, sounds intriguing. Um, so those are the next major shifts. We don't know what's gonna gonna come out of them. This is another question that came from listeners. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. Oh gosh, the old failure question. Uh, that's a tough one always. But um, I, I give you one example. You know, mm-hmm. sort of a personal side of things. You know, my dad was a musician, composer, mm-hmm. and because that life was so hard, he kind of pushed us kids away from music. Right. He didn't want us to go in that direction. So when I was in college, finally I said, "Look, I want to play an instrument." You know, I wanted to play piano. Uh, so I started to do that. But what I've learned is that unless you are fully, at least me personally, fully focused on something, you right. don't get it done. So here I am 30 years later, and I'm still thinking to myself, gosh, I really want to play piano. And by hell or high water, I want before I leave this planet to have some level of proficiency. I've not gotten there yet, but the lesson I would say is for me personally, if I'm going to do something, it has to be 100% commitment or it just doesn't happen. I have a friend who started taking Italian lessons, and he said he thought it would take five years to really be proficient. Yeah. And I said, gee, that's a long time. And he said, the five years are going by whether I'm studying Italian or not. Yeah, right. So maybe yeah, exactly there's a, right. uh, yeah. something yeah. to it. All right, my, I know we only have the room for two couple more minutes. Let me get to my last two and most favorite questions. You work with a lot of millennials, young students. Yeah. Someone comes to you and says, I'm interested in a career in theoretical physics. What sort of advice would you give them? Well, I tell them, number one, can you imagine doing anything else? Because I think to really succeed in this field, you've got to be one of the people who say, no, no, Mm -hmm. my heart and soul is in physics, and that's what I've got to do. Because it's a hard field, very few jobs, you work like crazy, you don't make a lot of money. You have to be doing it because it's got you by the DNA. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, then I tell them, look, the next thing is, You've got to learn the basics inside out. Don't try to jump ahead and do string theory or general relativity because right. it's cool ideas that you maybe saw some television show, mine or somebody else's. You've got to learn Newton, Maxwell, everybody inside out. And then if at the end of that, you still love the field, keep on going. And my final question that I ask all my guests, what is it that you know today about physics, string theory, what have you, that you wish you knew when you were starting out 25 or so years ago? Can I give a real nuts and bolts sure. to that question? Not sort of some high-end wondrous thing? Well, you know, 25 years ago, numerical methods using computers was not really the centerpiece of doing mm-hmm. physics. But so many issues today, if you're doing general relativity, if you're doing these really hard problems, you've got to be a crackerjack computer person to be able to push certain of these calculations forward. And I always left that to others. Mm-hmm. I would do the equations and I'd leave it, say, to the students to program it, to take it forward. I wish I was a crackerjack programmer because there's a certain kind of insight that I found myself, even in the rudimentary stuff that I've done in the numerical world, you learn things better. If you can take an idea, turn it into a program, and actually calculate something with it in that way, you understand it better. So I tell all students, get proficiency in numerical methods, even if you're going to be doing high-end theory. It will serve you well. Hmm. Quite fascinating. We have been speaking with Professor Brian Green, Director of the Center for Theoretical Physics at Columbia University. 
Be sure and check out any of the other 150 or so such conversations we've had. You can find them on Bloomberg.com, Apple iTunes, SoundCloud, or any of the other places where fine podcasts are hosted. I would be remiss if I did not thank my producer, Taylor Riggs, or my director of research, Michael Batnick. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Our world is always moving. So with Merrill Lynch, you can get access to financial guidance online, in person, or through the app. Visit ML.com and learn more about Merrill Lynch, an affiliate of Bank of America. Merrill Lynch makes available products and services offered by Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer member, SIPC.